0: Time on Still Waters. This is NB 506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. 19th of August, Thursday. This week, each day fills and swells with the stresses and anxieties of work. Familiar pulses of panic surge up as the seconds tick by. They overwhelm my skies. It feels as if it's all my world can contain, and even then, it's not big enough. But then, I have also seen damson fruit ripen, and turn all the colours of a tropical sunset, and hang midnight blue and misty on the tree, and for that I am glad. This is the Naropoterica, narrow casting under a rain-washed sky. The wind has dropped. The air is warm and gentle. A heavy moon is riding the parting clouds. It's lovely to have you back again. Thank you so much for taking time to come. And welcome aboard. It's been a rather turbulent, roiling, watery sort of day today heavy clouds walling the sky the colour of old snow and schoolboy shirt-cuffs. And the promise that has been building all week finally broke, with some heavy short spells of rain. And the hedgerows shivered and pattered, and ducks emerged and shook themselves like dogs. And when Penny and I stood under the beech tree, Large drops fell like ball bearings in a pinball machine, bouncing and ricocheting from branch to branch and leaf to leaf. And the oaks are showing the bright emeralds of lammas growth. And plums are now almost over. Their flesh has gone watery, and the skin tartly bitter, ripe for wasps it all rather put me in mind of Tom Hennon's poem, Night Crawls On, locked leaf by leaf into the shadows, the fragrance of plums moves sure as a road along the bottom of the night. There's been a feeling of busyness this week. And I don't think it's entirely due to the pressure of my work colouring my perception. Boats have been coming and going. Snatches of conversation. Shouted over engine noise. Ropes snaking around mooring pins and through rings. A splash of colour and life. And then the waters once more still. And there's a heron who's gradually extended its fishing patch. Since spring we've watched it inch closer up the canal. And now it's a regular visitor. Statuesque. And familiar and alien in equal measure. The swans continue to do well. The little signet that got lost last week now keeps very close to its mother. We're still not quite sure how it managed to get lost, but what we think happened was that they were down by the lock and somehow the signet got separated from its parents and went down the lock with a boat and then couldn't get back, although actually it could just get out and walk around the lock and Quite often swans do that, but particularly in the big locks, swans can sometimes use locks as a, as a way of just moving up and down the canal. It's not totally unknown for something like that to happen. And having them been separated, it then went down and continued down the canal, and that's when it began to encroach on another swan pair and was trying to make contact with it and that's when things got a little bit worrying because the signet is old enough and and large enough to have been perceived by this other swan couple as a threat and they would have killed it. So as I said, it is staying very, very close to its mother and it's quite sharp cheeping noises is a kind of frequent background musical accompaniment to my day. I haven't managed to see much of the moorhen chicks, but I, I know at least one is still surviving and and is growing and uh, is, is getting the fev- proper feathers rather than that, that scrawny look that they have when they are newly hatched. And the ducks continue to do their duck-type things. And as far as I'm aware, there's none who have laid or are sitting on any nests at the moment, and geese are beginning to gather once again, heralding the, the turn of the seasons. This week on the Nighttime on Still Waters Facebook page, our old friend Nancy Jean Armstrong asked a couple of really interesting questions, and although I answered them on the page, I thought I'd also, share them here her first question was about swans and it was really on the back of the swan saga that I was telling you about in last week's episode and she asked are all swans owned by the queen and therefore are our little family royal property and it's a, actually it's a complicated answer as, as most answers are but I think probably technically, yes. The Queen has ownership of all unmarked swans on the Thames. Now, now, we're not on the Thames. But she also has prerogative over all other swans on open water in England and Wales, not, not in Scotland. In other words, she has the right to claim ownership. So she could having listened, as I'm sure she does, to the Nighttime on Still Waters and hearing about the signet, she could say, oh, I think I'll have that signet. And she has a right to do so. There's only three other institutions or organisations that are allowed to have ownership of swans. The first and perhaps the most well-known is at Abbotsbury, and that's since the 14th century, and there's a huge swan reservation at Abbotsbury, absolutely worth a, a visit if you can get down there. It's on the on the door, I think it's Dorset. It, it's down on the the south coast, southwest coast, anyway. And the other two's are the vintners and the dyers, and they their claim goes back to the 15th century. So I suppose the short answer, Nancy, is that no, she doesn't own flower swans, but she has the right to do so if she wants to. Nancy's other question was about who maintains the banks. And that was really on the the back of some photographs that I've been posting on the Facebook page, but also on Twitter and Instagram as well, of some of the the very colourful plants, purple loosestrife and and other plants, that blaze of colour. At the moment? The answer to that is the Canal and River Trust. They are charged to maintain the canals in a navigable state and also along the towpath side to make sure that they're clear and unobstructed. The work is more often done by contractors. I'm not sure whether the responsibility also includes the bank on the opposite side of the towpath, or whether that's the responsibility of the landowner, when the canals were being dug, the canal companies purchased, I think it was uh, like 10 feet, I, something like that, it seems to ring a bell, I, I I need to do a little bit more checking, but certainly a, a, a fairly large margin on each side of the canal, and that was They were owned by the canal companies, but I'm not sure whether that right of access and ownership has now extended to the Canal and Rivers Trust or whether the landowner is charged to keep that clear. Certainly, the opposite sides of the banks are less cut back. And I, for one, am quite happy about that. And there is a little bit of a debate going on anyway about how much you should cut back the canal banks on the towpath side. As a somebody who uses the canals and would want to moor up, then I do appreciate uh, being able to get into the banks without having to fight through thick foliage and undergrowth. However, at the same time, I also like the thick foliage and undergrowth. And so there's a bit of a debate going on about how much it should be maintained. And alongside that question, Nancy asked if the canals ever got so shallow that they became difficult to navigate, and yes, they do. In fact, this year, one of the pounds, that's the, the stretcher canal between locks, got so low that we were touching the bottom at times. Although it happens very rarely now, canals can sometimes breach, and that obviously means that the water drains away. And some canals are less efficient than others at holding water because of the geology, and they need to be lined or relined to ensure that they actually hold the water. And also at times of drought, when the feeder reservoirs and rivers run low, and this means that the water that's being used through the locks Locks take a lot of water and that needs to be replenished somehow. Often it's through feeder reservoirs or through rivers that have been diverted into the canal. And if they can't replenish the water, then that obviously has an effect on the the depth of water in the canal system. However, the most common reason for a loss of water or for a shallow canal is human error and somebody leaving one of the or more of the sluice gates open which has the effect of draining the water from that pound or that stretch of water above the lock. Some of the locks are now quite old and leaky and again that has a similar effect of leaving the sluices open. So yes it is a fairly common problem and The advice is always to keep to the centre of the canal whenever possible and try to keep away from the edges because most canals, the edges are the shallowest. Thank you to everybody who's got in contact with me over this last week and particularly about the swans and the lost signet. It's lovely to hear from you. And if you do want to contact me, please use either the Facebook page, Nighttime on Stillwaters Facebook page, or Twitter or Instagram, messaging me there, or drop me a line at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com. And it was lovely to hear from James Girch. It's always an utter delight to hear from you, Jim. And thank you for your comments about the genius of the place and I'd not made those connections. And Jim was making the connection with the genius of the place and numinosity and encountering the other or encountering something that's transcendent. And talk about perhaps these gentle, almost prosaic encounters can also have that aspect of numinosity. And he also then connected this with a piece of writing, which funnily enough, we're going to be looking at next week. And that's from The Wind in the Willows and The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So if you're interested, then please make sure that you listen next week. Now, next week is going to be slightly different to our normal episodes because I'm going to be offline again. And so it's going to be another summer reading. Next week is going to be The Wind in the Willows. And that's a wonderful book and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it. And I'm sure most of you are going to be familiar with the story, at least have heard of it. And it has this incredibly powerful and beautiful and moving section in it called Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And I'll be reading that next week. It was wonderful this week to welcome aboard some visitors and some very good friends. Fleur and David, and I've known David for a number of years. Initially as work colleagues, we shared an office together. It's great when friendships develop, and like seeding grass, find newer and richer pastures in which to expand and flourish. And Unfortunately Donna was working, but Penny and I had a lovely time just showing them over the Erica. And Penny particularly wants to know when you're coming back, Fleur. So you have to make a date. And it's also lovely. And I have to be honest, a really delightful surprise that you like Nighttime on Stillwater so much. So a special hello to you both. And keep just being yourselves. The world is a richer place for it. It's also great to see at least a quick glimpse of Wayne and Amanda, the NB wannabes, on the Foxes Afloat vlog. And they were reading a line from one of Roy Fisher's poems. And if you want to see them, it's on episode 167 of the Foxes Afloat vlog. And the episode is A Day in the Life of Hillmorton Locke. And Wayne and Amanda are the first two people who are reading the first two lines of Roy's poem. And it's also great that you are now the proud owners of A Narrowboat yourself. So I'm hoping that you are absolutely enjoying and delighted with life aboard the Narrowboat Akern Perhaps it's the weather or perhaps it's just me. But this year's summer has felt strange. Or I should say, August this year has felt a bit strange. For me, August has always meant summer. Childhood books and pictures illustrating August are always filled with blazing circles of sun and beaches and sandcastles and starfishes and spades and buckets. Even Miles Hadfield opens his chapter on August with an illustration of a beach scene, if somewhat uncharacteristically rather urban and prosaic, with brick walls and railings and slightly faded and tattered terraced boarding houses, and even a gasometer in the back. And consequently, it's always been a bit of a jarring shock when I hear of schools returning and teaching commencing in Scotland or the US or elsewhere. August is summer and it's holidays. And for some reason, for me, this year's August doesn't feel like that. It feels like summer's over and we're going into autumn. And of course, that's true, and I'm not sure why it's come to me as such a shock. The whole point of August, and the long school holidays, and the university's long vac, was to help with the harvest. This was the time of harvest, after a bountiful summer. It's true, sun-warmed seas lift our temperatures, and so sunny days roil with heat, but high summer has gone. That's not to say that days of summer light and warmth are over, and quite often, meteorologically, they are still ahead of us, but the cycle of blossom and fruit has turned. And I can remember going into a school once at the beginning of term. I I used to work with traveller and gypsy children in schools, and it was a time in my life that holidays, particularly the long school ones over the summer, were really precious. And I held on to them with a, a vice-like grip, almost as if by sheer force of willpower I could stop or, or at least slow down the march of time and the swing of the seasons. And I remember being unreasonably upset and angry in going to one school where they, on the first week back, all the teachers were discussing their preparations for the Harvest Festival. Now, it hadn't helped that I had just come from another school. Might my job entail me going from different schools, sometimes two or three in one day, And I had just come from school where the main focus was what did you do on your school holidays. And so pictures of sandy beaches and tents and trips to adventure parks were drawn and put up on all the walls. And outside the sun blazed from a blue sky. And now here it was all about autumn and conquer championships yeah, don't believe all that you hear and read about in the papers, they do still exist, and falling leaves of gold. And they were, of course, entirely right. And my resentment at what I felt to be the stealing of my precious summer was totally irrational and out of kilter with what was happening in the environment in which I was living. The school holidays always have marked the turning from summer to autumn and harvest. That was their purpose. And this has always been the case. It's because it comes at the end of summer that this is a time of rest and celebration and relaxation. The 16th century, the calendar of shepherds, marks this well. It is now August, and the sun is somewhat towards his declination. However it then continues, Yet such is his heat, as hardeneth the soft clay, Dries up the standing ponds, Withereth the sappy leaves, and scorcheth the skin of the naked. There then follows a glorious, riotous carnival of celebration, Filled with bounty and harvest, but also, and and here's the point, revelry, relaxation, the letting go, the liberation from hard work, the hint of sex, everything that's associated with holiday. Now begin the gleaners to follow the corn cart, and a little bread to a great deal of drink makes the traveller's dinner. The melon and the cucumber is now in request, and oil and vinegar give attendance on the salad herbs. The alehouse is more frequented than the tavern, and the fresh river is more comfortable than a fiery furnace. The bath is now visited by diseased bodies, and the fair rivers swimming is a sweet exercise. The bow and bowie many a purse, and the cocks with their heels spume away many a man's wealth. The pipe and the tabor is now lustily set on work, and the lad and the lass will have no lead in their heels. A new wheat makes the gossips cake, and the bride cup is carried above the heads of the whole parish. The Fermity pot welcomes home the harvest cart, and the garland of flowers crowns the captain of the reapers. Oh, tis a merry time, wherein honest neighbours make good cheer, and God is glorified in his blessings on the earth. In sum, for what I find, I thus conclude, I hold it the world's welfare and the earth's warming pan. Farewell. And this sense of orchestra's marking the turn and cycle of seasons, and in some senses giving a reason to celebrate that very turning, is captured so beautifully in Wendell Berry's part 12 of his Sabbath poems. And I take up the poem halfway through. Briar, bittersweet and fern. Box elder, locust, elm, cedar, wild grape and thorn Will reinstate the time of deep root and wide shadow Of bright hot august calm On the small tree ringed meadow of goldenrod and bee balm Thicket will grow up through the thatches of the grass An old way turning new as lives and wishes pass. And as the thicket dies, the hickory ash and oak of the true woods will rise across a long time. Like will speak to like. The breeze resume old music in the branch ends of the trees. The long age. Come again. and The hard field will find ease In being thus released. Let it grow wild in peace. My workplace come to rest. To speed this change of goods I spare the seedling trees And thus invoke the woods The genius of this place. I stop the mower blade and so conspire with time in the return of shade completion of this rhyme. This is the Narrowboat Erica signing off for the night and wishing you a very good peaceful and restful night. Good night. temperature outside 15 degrees inside 20 degrees humidity 79% dew point 14 degrees wind direction west southwest wind strength 3 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1,013.2 Rising Cloud cover 10% Cloud ceiling None Precipitation 3.3 millimetres Moon phase 99.6% Waxing gibbous Day length 14 hours 17 minutes Sunset 2017 Sky casting 601